Keep your Bible open to Genesis 26. We'll be putting our noses into it regularly throughout the next few minutes. If you're into Westerns, you know that the same handful of storylines pop up in just about every plot. For example, there always seems to be a romance, uh, a showdown, which sometimes relates to the romance. And then there's uh, the ranch, the deed to which is always in some level of danger. Uh, now, this is the ranch that Grandpa settled and uh, Pa is trying to hold on to, and the kids hope to inherit someday. Now, this danger to the deed generally comes from one of two directions. It can come from without, uh, by way of the four Fs, uh, famine, fire, flood, or foes, or it can come from within, by, by one's poor judgment. So there's a bumper crop, and, and Paul looks at those prophets, and he just can't help himself. He pours it into some speculative financial deal and watches it all go away. And in that way, the deed's in danger because he may have to sell the ranch in order to pay the debt. But you know, well, what Pa doesn't know is that every morning when Ma goes out to milk the, milk the cow, she skims the cream off the top of Bossy's milk and she goes down and sells it and she's been saving up all this money in her sewing kit and so when the need is great, she puts it out and presents it to Pa and... Um, that's a woman who knows her man. She saves the ranch. Of course, you can have other dangers from within, the, the, the quarreling that goes on among the siblings. Uh, you know, who's going to get the ranch when Pa's gone? And so you've got greed and you've got spite, and they're all headed for jail unless they work out their differences, patch things up, and save the ranch from receivership. Well, Genesis 26 unfolds before us almost like a Western, except in the chapter, God's blessing is like the deed. The most precious possession for every generation of Isaac's family, but here it appears to be in danger. In verses 1 through 11, the danger comes from within by way of Isaac's own foolishness, and then in verses 12 through 33, the danger comes from without by way of the Philistines. Now the question is, will Isaac keep or lose God's blessing? Now that storyline not only pops up here in chapter 26, but all throughout the Old Testament where God's people, heirs of this most wonderful blessing, regularly seem to put it in danger. Now there's, there's danger that they experience that comes from without, Philistines here, Eric mentioned the Edomites last week, we'll see them again. Uh, the Egyptians will come into play once uh, the book of Exodus uh, is opened. The Babylonians are the, the, the great trial from without by the end of the Old Testament. But the dangers can also come from within, within their own company. God's people reject his law to do what is right in their own eyes. See that in the book of Judges. They reject him for a king of their own choosing in the book of 1 Samuel. 
And then throughout the Old Testament, they are persecuting and even killing the prophets that God sends to minister his word among them. So the question is, how could there ever be a happy ending to this family history in which there is so much danger and so much peril put upon this thing that is so precious to them? And that's why I said that this story is almost like a Western. In a Western, the future of the ranch, the security of the deed is always in question. But in the Bible, the future of the blessing is never in doubt because God's blessing is not a legal contract like a deed, but rather it is a divine covenant. What's the difference between a covenant and a contract? Well, a contract is a kind of agreement into which uh, two people enter whereby uh, you promise to do this and I promise to do that, and if either one of us goes back on our word, then the contract becomes null and void. But a covenant, unlike a contract, which is conditional, a covenant is unconditional. That's why marriage is not a contractual union. It's a covenantal union. And that's why integral to the wedding ceremony is the line, for better or for worse. At which point in the ceremony, the, the man and the woman admit to each other, yes, there will be good times and there will be bad times, but no, I will never give up on you. Never give up. You may give up on me. I will never give up on you. And of course, the marriage covenant is a reflection of God's covenant with his people made back in Genesis 15. We heard Kenny preach on that last October. And in which the Lord swore to Abraham and his offspring his unconditional presence and protection and inheritance. And this is why when the blessing appears to be in danger for God's Old Testament people, there's always hope because it was forged on God's unbending word to them through Abraham. And this is also why when that blessing appears to be in danger it, uh, for God's New Testament people, it's you and me, in danger from within by way of the hostile world all around us, or uh, without, uh, or from within by way of our own uh, insecurities and, 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 and foolishness, there's always hope because it was forged on God's unbending word to us through Christ. Galatians 3.29 says, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs, not of works, but according to promise. And so this morning we're going to give our attention to this unfailing promise. God's unfailing promise promise that holds fast when your faith is assailed from without. And that happens in all sorts of ways, doesn't it? Maybe your faith is assailed by, by the gnawing despair that can come with infertility. That was certainly the challenge faced by Isaac's family and uh, the generation before him. Maybe that's yours as well. 
promise that holds fast when your faith is assailed by the, the piercing discouragement that comes with extended unemployment, uh, uh, the grinding hopelessness of a, prof- of, of a prolonged illness. Am I ever going to get up out of this bed? Will I ever be able to stand from this chair? Will I ever feel the way that I once did? Or the profound sadness after a sudden death. That's the thing through which I've been working over the last couple of weeks, two deaths. One that took place at the mouth of the Mississippi River, an 85-year-old man whose family I've been friends with for decades. He was out with a couple other guys. And, and they're at that point in the, at the mouth of the Mississippi where it meets the Gulf, and they're in a sizable boat that's hit by a rogue wave and capsized. And so this fellow comes up, and he sees the other two guys, and he says to one, you take care of him. And then when they came back to get Don Tab, he was gone. And they didn't find his body until five days later, about well, a number of miles away. The other one has to do with a, a, a girl that I knew from the time she was eight years old, who just a week ago this past Wednesday suddenly and surprisingly took her own life. How grateful I am for God's promise that holds fast even when my faith is assailed by darkness. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness isn't dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Psalm 139, 11 and 12. But God's promise also holds fast when your faith is assailed from within, the the serpentine ways of your own heart, by by that badgering memory of canceled sin that raises its ugly head and reminds you of what a goof you are and have been. The enduring temptation, Jesse mentioned this, that enduring temptation that tires your soul and to which you succumb from time to time. That, that deflating disparity between where you are and where you know you ought to be in your, right, in your relationship with the Lord. And then the stinging reminders of all those whom you've hurt, maybe even the, over the course of the past year or over the course of your life. How grateful I am that God's promise holds fast even when my faith is assailed by those condemning thoughts from within. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, 1 John 3.20. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, a real-life example of God's unfailing promise, even when we're attacked, even when our faith is attacked from without, as well as from within. But before we go there, I just want to look at three things real quick that are going to help focus uh, the picture here in Genesis 26. Number one, Genesis 26 is the only chapter in Scripture that's entirely given to Isaac. Now, Isaac pops up all over the place, but this is the only chapter that is entirely devoted to him. Now, it's one thing to ever be mentioned in Scripture. It's another thing to have an entire chapter devoted to you. So it's especially interesting, I think, to notice the things on which God wants us to focus as he 
brings Isaac to center stage. So we see uh, trials that assail him from within. In fact, that's the first thing we'll see. And then trials from without. But as much as the chapter is all about Isaac, it's really about the preeminent strength of God's unfailing promise. Which leads us to the second thing. Number two, Genesis 26 shows that the promise to Abraham was in fact passed on to Isaac. And it was done so in person. We see that there in verses three and five, again in 23 and 24. And I say in person because in verses two and 23, we read that the Lord appeared to Isaac. That's what's called a theophany. It's a pre-incarnate appearance of God himself. So Isaac's uh, certainty of God's of God's blessing, God's covenant with him, wasn't just something that um, seemed to fit his way of thinking, uh, wasn't something by which he was impressed one night as he couldn't sleep, but this is an in-person promise made to him by the Lord himself. Third, the riches of God's promise to Isaac in Genesis 26 are uh, a book ended, if you will, by two bitter disappointments. The first disappointment is one at which we looked last week when, um, when the feckless Esau, you know what Eric said, feckless Esau. I, I don't know about you, but every once in a while, somebody uses a word or a term from this lectern here that just lodges itself in my brain and I can't get it out all week long. So feckless Esau is the way I've been thinking of him. He gave up his birthright by which he could have inherited a double portion of his father's fortune and a a special ceremonial blessing. Now the reason that the forfeiture of Esau's birthright was such a disappointment to Isaac is because Esau was his father's favorite son. So much so that when the time came for that ceremonial blessing, Isaac's still trying to give it to Esau even though it's been passed on to Jacob. So Jackson's gonna unpack that for us next week. So that's the first bitter disappointment. The second one is found at the end of this chapter. In fact, the last two verses of it that are left for next week. That's why Jim didn't read them, but in which we find that Esau married two Hittite women, uh, Judith and Basemith. And together, we read in verse 34, they all made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. So, <laughs> when I look at that banner right there of Isaac, I, uh, I see a man who, who's exuding the, the radiance, uh, the presence of God's protection, but one whose countenance looks kind of like some of yours. Tired, beaten down, living under the stress and the strain of pressures that have come upon him from within and without. Well, let's get into this passage here and see how God's promise of uh, protection and his presence were at first tested from within by Isaac's own foolishness. Uh, In verse number one, we see that there was a famine in the land, and so Isaac is inclined to go to the land of plenty, the land of Egypt, to find relief. 
Now we know this because God says to him in verse two, don't go to Egypt. So Isaac changes his plans and obeys God's word and goes to uh, the presumably and equally famine-stricken land of Gerar, not too far away, only about a five-hour walk. So the question at that point is, why, why didn't the Lord send him down to Egypt? Well, the text doesn't tell us. But it could very well have been God's way of testing Isaac's faith, preventing him from putting his eyes on important but short-term provisions like food and encouraging him to focus on and grow in the most important long-term provisions seen here in verses three and four, which comprise the promise of God's enduring presence and his abundant blessing. Man doesn't live by bread alone. But man does live by every word that comes out of the mouth of God, Deuteronomy 8.3. Further, God encouraged Isaac to do this by the example of his own father. So notice in verse number five, five times over, uh, uh, the Lord says of Abraham that he obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac has been steeled steeled with God's blessing from his uh, very presence, uh, steeled by the uh, example of his own father. And according to verse six, uh, it says he obeyed God's word and he settled in Gerar. But after settling in, Isaac turns right around and disobeys the Lord. Take a look at verse seven. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, she said, she is my sister. (laughs) If I had cartoon break sound effects, I'd hit those right now. We've seen this before, haven't we? Jesse knows that. I think in the first service he mentioned, I think I've led singing on every one of the Sundays this has come up. This is the third time we've seen that. The Lord just exhorted Isaac to be like Abraham at his best, and here he turns and acts like Abraham at his worst. The way Abraham acted on at least two occasions of which we're aware, at which we've looked, back in chapter 12 being one, the next one in chapter 20, but probably more often than that. Because Abraham and Sarah had made this agreement that to every place that they went, Sarah would say of Abraham, he is my brother. And why did they do that? Well, according to Abraham, that my life would be spared, chapter 12, verse 13. Lest they kill me because of my wife, chapter 20, verse 11. So this fearful and deceitful and faithless behavior, it's really hardwired right into Isaac's psyche. This is something with which he's grown up. It's the family way. And may very well explain why he almost reflexively answers these men of Gerar in that fashion. But I think it's also fair to say that this inclination to fear was fueled by the world in which he lived. It was a dangerous world. In fact, in the main, I mean, neither Abraham nor Isaac were Recreational liars, they're held up before us as models of faith. So you can be sure that in these 
tense situation, standing before the unknown scruples of these foreigners, that the temptation was great to do what was in, within their own power to save their lives. I think that's pretty understandable to us, isn't it? But it was inexcusable to God. And so much so that instead of covering for Isaac, God revealed Isaac's deception. Pops the lid right off it. When Abimelech discovered it, you see that there in verse number eight, confronts Isaac with it in verse number nine, which is no doubt a surprise and an embarrassment to the patriarch, scolded him, scolded this one through whom a blessing was to come to all the nations, but scolds him now for the lethal guilt that could have fallen on all the Philistines. See that there in verse number 10. Now we may not be tested from within in that same way, but we all find ourselves in similar situations whereby we, we, we are in this place to which maybe God's word has even led us. But all of a sudden, things aren't as we thought they were going to be. We are challenged, our hearts are seized with fear. And it's at that point when it's a good thing to have a, a tight theology of martyrdom. I've been thinking about that over the last couple of weeks in particular, but mainly for this reason. We should have a good theology of martyrdom because we should all live with the mindset of a martyr. Jesus said whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. John 12, 25. So if you've already died to the world, then there's nothing too great that can be taken from you by the world. Let me say that again. If you've already died to the world, then there is nothing so great that, be, that can be taken from you by the world. So when the Lord says, not Egypt, Gerar. <laughs> Not plenty, but want. Not fat, but lean. You can say, yes, Lord, because I know that man, that woman does not live by bread alone. When the Lord says, tell the truth, don't lie, you can say, yes, Lord, because the fear of man is a trap but whoever trusts the Lord is safe, Proverbs 29, 25. To be sure, Isaac's flagging faith sorely tested God's promise and protection, but again, the Lord's, the Lord's promise isn't contractual, it's covenantal, it remains faithful even when Isaac is, is, is testing it, is, is flagging in his faith, when we do the same, it's not to say that he got off without a scratch. He didn't, because like his father, he's going to be plagued by the consequences of his foolishness, and we'll see that in, even in the next chapter. So in verses 1 through 11, God's promise is tested from within. In the remaining verses, it's tested from without, and there are two main tests that come upon it. The first one is the test of famine. 
So Isaac comes to Gerar, uh, a place, again, not too far from uh, famine, the famine-stricken land in which he was living, in response to God's word for famine relief. So he goes from famine to famine to find relief from famine. How did that work out? Well, take a look. If he'd put up, uh, he, he sowed and he reaped 100-fold. So if he'd put up 6,000 bushels of grain the year before, here in verse 12, he's putting up 600,000 bushels of grain. And he raises a prodigious number of sheep and cattle for which he had to have a sizable workforce. We see that in verse number 14. And all of this, according to 13, made Isaac rich, but as he accrued more and more and more, it made him very rich. So the Lord brought Isaac not to the land of feasting, but to the land of famine, so that he might provide relief in a way that clearly glorified him and not Isaac. And he still operates that way, doesn't he? I used to work with a fellow who was fond of saying, uh, in, in reference to Paul's words, that God's strength is perfected in our weakness. He, he would say that means that when you go into the phone booth as Clark Kent, you come out of the phone booth as Clark Kent, <laughs> not a Superman. So that whatever happens in and through you is obviously a work of the Lord. And the Lord still works in this way, bringing ones from, from health to illness so that he might harvest a bounty of real health in one's own soul. Sometimes from financial security to insecurity so that he might harvest a fortune of real security in one's own soul from wisdom to foolishness for a harvest of real wisdom, from strength to weakness for an abundance of real strength. And he'll do this even as we persist in our extremity, as Clark Kent, so that we can say, even I remember my brother uh, at times saying this, toward the end of his life, the, the dark days of, of cancer, he could say with the Apostle Paul, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. That's a reference to copy down. That's a reference to meditate on, even this afternoon. So God's promise to Isaac held true, even when his faith was tested from without by nature, but it also held true even when it was tested by man. God's blessing on Isaac caused the Philistines to, to recognize what he had going and they loved him. No, they did not. They didn't love him at all. In fact, they envied him and they vandalized his wells, says there in verse 14. Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, deported Isaac. Get out of here, verse 16. The rural herdsmen that they met up with from that point, they began to quarrel with, and um, that conflict was in verses 20 and 21. 
So how did Isaac respond to all this? I know how I would have been provoked to respond. We know how Isaac uh, was inclined to respond based on what we've seen already in this chapter. What do we see here? Well, he dutifully obeyed Abimelech's order to go, verse 17. He patiently dug up the wells that were buried by the Philistines, verse 18. He temperately avoided conflict with the Philistine herdsmen, verses 19 through 21. He exhibited what my football coach used to exhort us to, poise under pressure. Isn't it interesting that for Isaac, God's blessing didn't circumvent danger? I mean, that's our mindset, isn't it? Boy, if if God's on my side, I'll get out of this. No, rather, he takes him right through the danger so that God's blessing can lead to the outworking of Proverbs 16, 7. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And we know this because at the beginning of verse 26, Abimelech, who was originally visited by Isaac, now pays a visit to him, along with Ahazeth, his uh, civilian advisor, and Phicol, his military advisor. But before Isaac has any idea uh, that this is going to happen or what what will occur if it does, God makes a second in-person visit to Isaac in verse number 23, during which he reminds Isaac of who he is. Notice there in 23, I'm the God of Abraham, your father, and what Isaac should expect of him. Uh, His presence, I'm with you, and his blessing, I will bless you. But notice at this time, he adds something. In fact, he does so right there at the outset that he didn't before. He says to him, fear not. Fear not. The last time Isaac was given this blessing, he soon thereafter found himself trapped in the teeth of fear. But this time, well, what do we find this time? This time Isaac responds, not with God's word and a sense of resolve and mustering up everything that's within him and attacking this situation, Now, actually, we find Isaac responding to God's word in worship. Look at 26. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord. He worshiped the Lord. What's the difference between one who knows God's word and one who knows God's word and follows it by way of worship? This person, the worshiper, is fearless. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. Isn't that what God just said to Isaac? I'll be with you. And so he walks into this thing without any fear. He also walks in as a man who is kept not just in peace, but in perfect peace. Isaiah 26, 3. You know, concerning those deaths, 
to which I referred earlier. I've really been relying on the, the words of a, a pastor friend that were spoken just, just a week ago today. He said, these are the kind of situations that you, you can't reason your way through. More information doesn't necessarily uh, bring sense out of apparent senselessness. But he did say, these are the kind of situations that you need to worship your way through. So this time, fortified by worship, Isaac fearlessly receives a visit from those by whom he is opposed. But notice what happens upon their arrival. This, this is crazy stuff. I love this. Abimelech, Ahuzath, and Phicol acknowledged the very things that the Lord had just spoken to Isaac. The, the very things that at first Isaac refused at the outset of this this chapter and got him into trouble, they're now speaking to him. Verse 28, the Lord is with you. Verse 29, you are blessed of the Lord. And so Isaac and Abimelech sit down to a state dinner. Not a steak dinner, a state dinner. They may have had steak, but a state dinner. Exchanged promises and parted in peace. And so the story that began with the words that there was a famine in the land come to an end with these. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug, and they said to him, we have found water. How beautiful. This morning, you may feel overwhelmed with the, the pressures from without causing you to ask, Lord, do you, do you see my situation? Can you hear my cry? Do you really feel my pain? Or you may feel unworthy before God because of the the pressures from within, the wranglings of your own heart, those unrelenting voices. You're always going to struggle with that sin. God will never forgive you for that. Just think of all the friends and family members you've hurt. Those questions just come down like a hammer. They're relentless. And because of those things, you may wonder if God's presence, God's blessing are for you too. Oh, they're clearly for everyone else, but they could never be for me. Well, as we come to the table this morning, you'll do well to remember that the pressures by which you're faced are the same ones that Jesus faced. Pressures from without, those created by family and religious leaders and government officials. Pressures from within. Pressures through which he wrestled over the course of 40 days in the wilderness at the outset of his ministry and all night long in prayer just before the crucifixion. Pressures that were put upon him by Satan himself. Don't ever think that Satan is going to give you any time. He's a finite being. His minions are left to us. Jesus went face to face with the adversary himself. 
But you'll also do well to recall that Jesus perfectly faced those pressures. And he entirely destroyed the sin behind each one. Jesus did for you. He did for me what we could not have done for ourselves. He kept our part of the old covenant so that we can enjoy now and forevermore his abundant blessing, his presence, his inheritance by way of his new covenant that was secured by his death that we have come to remember and proclaim this morning. So if you believe that Jesus did this for you, then this meal is for you. If you believe that Jesus did this for you, but you're living in unrepentant sin, then you should refrain from taking this meal until you have uh, reconciled your sin with the Lord and the one against whom you have sinned, that you are welcome to the table. But if you don't believe that Jesus did this for you, then this meal is not for you. We're happy you're here, but it would be best that you not come forward. I hope that someday it is. And I encourage you to ask the Lord for the faith to see and embrace what you cannot at present because we'd love you to know and enjoy that great blessing. Well, as the servers come forward right now, I want to remind you that if you need a, or would prefer a gluten-free option, that's over there at the station on the right, where the Halversons are. And when you come forward, uh, which you are welcome to do when you're ready. You can just break off a piece of bread. Uh, you can dip it into the cup and then take it back to your seat and then prayerfully uh, eat it when you are ready. May the Lord bless us richly as we remember his great gift to us. All of us who are undeserving of it, his great gift to us, the forgiveness of sins, the power of the empty tomb that come by way of his death. Amen.